Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program exploring all the high-stakes speed bumps and off-ramps of driving to the top of your market with our host, Chris Beal from Connect and Sell and Corey Frank from Branch 49. Most sales reps think discovery isn't sexy, closing the deal is, but deals are won or lost in discovery, cautioned sales gravy CEO Jeb Blunt, today's podcast guest. This successful author of 15 sales-related books advises that 80% of your time in the sales process should be in discovery, especially during a recession, when the discovery call becomes even more important. In this second of two interviews with Jeb, our Market Dominance Guys hosts, Corey Frank and Chris Beal, share sales success nuggets taken from Jeb's most recent book, Selling in a Crisis, 55 Ways to Stay Motivated and Increase Sales in Volatile Times. You'll want to listen closely as these three like-minded sales gurus explain their own discovery call practices for establishing trust and how they get prospects to open up to them. All of this and so much more in today's Market Dominance Guys episode, Discover the Power of Discovery. uh, One of the things that we certainly do here at Branch 49 at Chris's insistence all those years ago is we're not just a revenue ops kind of agency top of funnel, but we also do discovery as a service. And Chris has identified that years ago as one of the kind of key frontline bottlenecks in organizations' discovery. So I was pleased, buttressed by the fact, Jeb, that you dive quite deeply into this as well, is that um, if you say that the deals are won and lost in discovery, not in the, in the presentation or the closes or even the negotiation, but in the, uh, you have to learn to increase sales to do discovery better. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Chris, I know you have some opinions on that too, but what do you mean by we have to learn to discover better and to do discovery calls a little bit better than we're doing today? Well, let's start with the reason why we don't do them. Discovery is the weakest link in most sales processes because it's not sexy. It's boring. Sexy is close the deal. Sexy is do the presentation. Walk into any room of salespeople and ask them, like, what would you like to know? And they'll, what to say. They want to know what words should come out of their mouth that are going to suddenly woo everybody and wow everybody into saying yes to them or complying with the request. But the truth is, is that in sales, a question you ask is more important than anything that you will ever say. But that's boring. It doesn't make us feel good to ask questions and listen. So discovery has a tendency to get put on the back burner, even though 80% of your time that you spend in sales conversations and inside the sales process should be on discovery because what you said, Corey, is true. Deals are won and lost based on the questions and the you ask and the information that you get. It's really no different than if you think about attorneys, lawyers going to court. If you've ever been in a case, you know that you went into depositions and there was a ton of discovery that was done up front. Pretty much cases are won and lost during that period of time, not in some you know, spark of inspiration in the middle of a courtroom. That happens on TV. It just doesn't happen in real life. In sales, there's typically not this magical place where like in a movie scene, you push the pen over to the, the buyer and say, sign here, and you've delivered some amazing message to them, and they just comply, sign it, and you go out and you celebrate. It doesn't really work like that. Typically, the deal is closed somewhere in discovery because you ask a question that provokes their awareness that they need to change. 
And then as you're listening to them, you're making them feel important. You're learning their story. And so as you build your business case, you begin to build these value bridges. You're connecting the dots between what you learned in discovery about their aspirations, about their pain, about the problems that they have to solve, and you're connecting it to what you can do for them, but you're using their language. That's the point where they begin to feel like you get them and they begin to trust you and you begin to close more deals. Now, as we move into recessionary period, discovery becomes even more important. And it becomes more important because as we're in an economic downturn, buyers begin to change their buying behaviors. The most important change that you're going to make is it going to be much more risk averse. They're always risk averse, but in an economic downturn, in a crisis, in a time where they've got to be very careful about the decisions that they make because it could impact their job or impact their company, you've got to build a much better business case in order to mitigate that risk, in order to lower their fears and show them the value of doing business with you. The only way that you can build that business case, a business case, by the way, that is laced with math to show them the outcomes that they're going to get from your business proposition, the only way you do that is through discovery. So it's always important, far more important in an economic downturn than in any other time because that business case truly matters. They are not going to give you their money unless they feel like the risk of giving you their money is low relative to the gains that they'll get from giving you their money and the return on the investment for doing business with you. But otherwise, you're dead in the water and you're not going to be able to talk your way out of that. There's not a close or an objection turnaround that's going to talk a buyer off the cliff if you haven't demonstrated that the value or the outcomes that they're going to gain from doing business with you, they're going to derive from doing business with you are a lower risk than spending their money with you in an economic downturn. Six months ago, they're throwing money at you. Today, not going to happen. Yeah, Chris, uh, we've spoken about that several times where a half-wounded, Jeb, what do you think about this theory, right? That a half-wounded prospect when they have a poor discovery interview thrust upon them and maybe that sales rep trips over one or two compelling questions that makes that prospect think or two, but then there's no follow-up, there's no elegance. That prospect is at risk of being taken off that chessboard for three years, average life cycle of a SaaS deal, 36 months. And so to do poor discovery doesn't mean it's there is a zero-sum game there. You lost that opportunity to convert that prospect. Chances are that pain still exists that prospect is going to get zapped up by somebody who's much more competent. Did I say that uh, correctly, Chris, from some of the things we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that some years ago, I gently suggested that you put together an agency that would go all the way through discovery, because it's clear to me, has been for quite a while, that discovery actually doesn't have a lot to do with your product, and therefore it can be done generically. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's great at discovery could do discovery for anything that any of us sell and do it with very, very little preparation around what that thing is, how it works and blah, 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 except they need to know basically, you know, 
what are the classes of problems that it solves? What are the knobs that get turned? And, and what are the outcomes that might happen as a result? And then they should stay away from all of that, except to ask the questions that might clue them in as to how this works. And I think I love what Jeb said and what language they use in order to talk about their world so that you can talk about your potential to be helpful to them in the language that they know how to reason in. You know, something that there's been a lot of research done on how language changes how we think. I was just talking to somebody the other day who spent some time in a part of Africa where in that particular place, people didn't talk about left or right. They didn't have words for left and right, but they had very, very good words for north, south, east, west, northeast, and so forth and so on. So you wouldn't say, you know, you got a, a snake that's on right off your right foot, you'd say you'd have a snake that's right off your north foot, right? It changes how your brain works when you use language in a certain way. And you have the big problem in sales. If you want to succeed, you have to be able to adapt to somebody else's language so that your brain works like their brain works. And the way to do that is to ask questions and get into not just what they say, but how they say it, what's behind it, where they get confused by the question. All that stuff is of huge value to you and is the differentiator between them being willing to part with at, with their risk. I mean, Jeb says their money, but actually, I think unless you're talking to a business owner, you're never talking about their money. You're talking about somebody else's money, but you're always talking about their risk and their risk is so much higher than the owner's. It's easy to sell value to owners. You cannot sell value to agents, to functionaries. You must sell risk reduction to them. And that's a good point because the, when people are asking a simple question, do you get me? So there's five questions that people are asking of you in discovery. Do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? Do you get me and my problems? I trust and believe you. And Chris is right. In most cases, when you're in sales, you're selling to someone who is using someone else's money to solve their problems. So when we're giving a business case, there's really three outcomes that we want to be able to demonstrate. There are personal outcomes. So for that individual stakeholder, what do they get from that? What is important to them that's going to help them and their life be better, their job be better? There are emotional outcomes. That's things like peace of mind or less stress. What does that look like? We talk about pain a lot. I'm not a really big fan of pain in sales. I know it's a Sandler thing, and I know that we like everybody likes to get a hold of it because it's an emotional thing, but pain is not the only reason why people buy. It's sometimes a reason people buy. And then there are measurable business outcomes. That's the math. The, we have to talk about all three of those things. So what discovery does is it helps me understand. It helps me get that person. This is very, very important. And let's just take the context that Chris said. When you're dealing with a business owner, it's one thing. When you're dealing with people who are typically buying, which is most of the time you're not dealing with the business owner. You're dealing with someone else who was using the business owner's money to solve problems. Mm -hmm. This idea of get matters greatly. Think about it like this. The most important, the most viable relationships you have in your life, you describe like this. This person gets me. Those mm -hmm. mean more than anything else. So what Chris was saying about language, which is just brilliant, is that language is a way to demonstrate get. You'll never have that level, the like the level of get that I have with my wife. You're not gonna, I'm not going to have that with a, someone I'm doing business with. But the same psychological blueprint is in play. 
does the person feel like I get them or at least that I'm trying to get them? So Corinne, let me back you up real quickly. You are a salesperson and you ask a good question, but you're so focused on the next question that you ask using your words, Corey, I'm not being eloquent about it. So rather than ask a follow-up probing question that demonstrates that what I just noticed was important to that person and allow them to talk more, which makes them feel important and significant because I'm trying to get them. I just move on to the next question that's on my list. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the yep. tattoo. I was 24 yep. years old. I was just reading questions off of a list. So I don't demonstrate that. But if I do the follow-up question, if I probe, if I listen deeply to what's being said behind the words and I get all that together and I start repeating it back to them, it's amazing sometimes when I say something back to someone in their words, they just look at me and they go, wow, you're the only person that's really listening to me. And I'm like, I just literally took the words out of your mouth and gave it back to you and you feel that I get you. Yeah, what you're doing with language is you're saying, and when I say outcomes, pain's one of the outcomes. Aspiration is an outcome. The, the chance to capture an opportunity is an outcome, a ch an opportunity. To, like if you're a business owner, I want to be at the same level as my competitors. That's not a pain. That's an aspiration. It's something that I want to accomplish. So mm -hmm. if I start repeating back to you, we can help you do these things. Like, you know, you told me, Corey, that when you were in this situation, it made you feel this way. And that was awful. I can't even imagine what that was like. What I can do for you in this particular situation is if we deploy these three solutions, it'll solve that problem for you and it'll it'll reduce the chance that you're going to feel that way again. How do you feel about that? The, yeah. well, how people respond to that is like extraordinary because all I did was use their language. Language matters. It connects us as groups and it taps into the human similarity bias that is always in play. No matter how hard we want it not to be in play, it is in play. We trust and like people who are more like us. But because we sell in a diverse economy to people who are not like us, the easiest, fastest way to tap into that is by speaking their language. And their language is their language of their company, their language of their jargon, the language of their team, their language of their aspirations and their pain. The only way you get there is through great questions and discovery that compel them to tell you things that get them to the point where they stop thinking about hiding stuff from you because you're the salesperson and they begin opening up and allowing you to get below the surface where they teach you their language and then you bring that back. You don't get that if you're doing shallow discovery or you're so caught up in what you're going to say next. You only get that organically when you're in the moment and when they begin to lean into you. And that takes I love the word eloquence. It takes uh, eloquence. It takes nuance. But it, but the the real key to doing it is essentially just being a, a good human being and stop selling and start just really listening to them and allowing them to express themselves and then coming back with how you're going to help them achieve their desired outcomes. Love that. I mean, that's a book right there, <laughs> which is sacred. That's number 16 right there. There we get it. Forget 60 days. You just did it in, in six minutes. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every day. 
And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their Impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. And we're back with Corey and Chris. So, but Chris, a lot of things that, that Jeb's talking about, we're in a different world than maybe five, 10 years ago where I jump on a plane and I go see a client. Right now, a lot of clients don't even turn their Zoom on because they're afraid that the Zoom gods will steer their soul or something like that, right? But they don't turn their camera on and, or we have the cold call. Chris, how do we, Jeb, how do we deal with that extra sensory perception that we have to have on the pauses or listening for the typing in the background? What do we do to kind of awaken that empathy, that great amount of empathy that you talk about and Chris, you've talked about for years? I do discovery in a funny way. That's all I got to say. Because to me, everything in sales is always about the other person's emotional journey. And my favorite book of Jeb's is Sales EQ. And Sales EQ has to do with, it's not so much our emotions, it's their emotions. And it's the same, you know, Jeb works with animals, he works with horses, right? I grew up in a world of all animals. It was, I didn't have any people, I just had animals. And, you know, when you're working with animals, especially animals bigger than you are, you realize the only thing that counts is their emotions. That's kind of it. They have their capabilities, which tend to be sort of substantial and multidimensional in ways we don't understand. And every once in a while, you they surprise you. You know, I didn't know that one could bite so hard, for instance, is, is a good one. But we, when you come right down to it, it's the emotions. The emotions move fast when they move. They tend to be stable islands. And then when they move, they move fast. To me, what Jeb just said is you want somebody in discovery. Your only goal, in my opinion, is you get to the point where they start opening up to you. That's it. If there were another goal in discovery, I think I would have found it by now. The goal is, and we have a whole episode on this somewhere in the archives called The Confessional is Now Open. You want to get into the confessional. You want them to tell you their truth. And what I found is oddly easy. It's just like cold calling. Cold calling is very easy in one way because you know where they start emotionally. They're afraid of you. You've got to build trust. You got seven seconds to do it. Great. There's a lot of ways to do it, but you better do it. Otherwise, the emotional journey towards curiosity and commitment just ain't going to happen, right? Until they trust you that, that little bit. I think the emotional journey and discovery starts with apprehension. They're apprehensive. They're pretty sure you're going to try to sell them something. They're pretty sure you're an expert and they aren't. And they're pretty sure that they don't want to have you have the better of them. So they're apprehensive. They're kind of, they don't want to go into the room. They don't want to go into the confessional. How do you get them out of apprehension? You have to replace it with another emotion. I mean, emotions are always there. So the question is, well, what's the replacement emotion? The one I choose is pride. Because everybody, if you think about it, it's impossible to be apprehensive and proud at the same time. It's actually like they are incompatible emotions. You can't have both. So it's very easy to provoke pride in somebody in a very innocent question. Mine sounds funny. People think like Anthony and Arena would laugh at me for this and think I'm a total idiot. But when you see the results, <laughs> you might think otherwise. I just ask the simple question. So, uh, so Corey, I, it always helps me to know where somebody is in the, in the physical world, where are you right now on the face of our blue whirling planet? And I ask it exactly like that. And then I wait and I can go 25 minutes listening to your answer and I'm happy. 
because mm-hmm. you're in a place of pride of place and pride of place is a universal for human beings. Every human being has pride of place. I don't care where you live, you're proud of it, right? And then I want to go from pride of place to pride of mission because until I know why they're doing their job, why they get up every day and go and do that job, I really am going to have a hard time kind of getting underneath all of that to the confessional. Like, why are they even doing this? It can't be for the money. Nobody does anything for money very long, right? They give it up. I don't want to deal with them anyway. So so then I asked this other question, which is, hey, when everything goes great, when it goes great, it's fantastic. Product is right. You know, timing is right. The budget is there. Everything's great. Your people do what they have to do. You know, the other guy does what they have to do. How does your product change that person's life? And then I sit back and wait. A lot of people think that's two stupid discovery questions, right? Oh, Chris, you're trying to get empathy, blah, 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 blah. The fact is, most of the time, after that second question, somebody, after they've confessed their mission, pride of mission is there, they will start to talk about what's in the way of them accomplishing that mission. And that's where you want to be because that's where you want to be. You don't know, is it economic? Is it emotional? Is it strategic? It's something because everybody is frustrated that they can't do their job as well as they hold themselves accountable for. That's beautiful. Can you teach that curiosity, Jeb? Can you teach that? Or is it what you had said earlier about uh, prospecting that the way to do it is just to do it? And to say the questions and eventually you'll start meaning the questions? Or is there another bio life hack that you'd suggest to engender that level of uh, curiosity and empathy? Yeah, you can teach. I mean, there are people who shouldn't be in sales. Let me get clear about that. There are people who should not be in sales. But people who have a core set of talent, you can teach that. The problem for younger salespeople is they haven't developed the emotional intelligence yet to have the patience that Chris does to allow the answer to begin to build. They step on it. You can teach people how to control their emotions. A lot of cases, what'll happen is the person's in the middle of telling you where they live or telling you what's important to them. And you blurt out what's important to you, too, because when you're talking, it makes you feel important. And when you're not talking, it makes you feel unimportant. So with salespeople, you can teach that. You can teach the patience. I learned it. I learned it from masters like Chris who taught me these things and and sometimes through a kick in the rear end. But I learned it. You learn it through trial and error, but you mostly learn it by just learning human skills. One of the ways I teach people this is just through science. So Chris did two things there in those questions. One is he recognized something called the negativity bias, which is when people start telling you about something that's good, they'll almost always tell you what something is bad. So if I say, tell me what you love about your competitor, they'll go blah, 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 blah. But you know, they don't do these things. I know it's going to happen every single time. I don't got to worry about it. It's always a pattern. He also stumbled into the the self-disclosure loop, and this is pure science. When a person is talking, they are getting a dopamine hit to the pleasure centers of the brain. It makes them feel good. Some people, it's harder to get them to that into that state than others, but it's you can get every single person to that state because it's science. They talk about themselves and they get the dopamine hit. They talk about themselves and they get a dopamine hit. So what I teach young salespeople is if you will learn to have the patience to pause, to allow them the space to talk, in most cases – They'll continue talking, continue talking, continue talking until they cross over what I call the TMI zone. But they move into this place, and Chris described this, where they begin pouring out their soul. 
And even when their brain consciously says, you shouldn't be saying all these things, they can't help themselves. I mean, they're, but because they're so hopped up on brain crack that it's like they're almost uninhibited. And, Mm -hmm. and so when you get them doing that, they start telling you all these things. And then, and then Chris left out one little part of this, which is pre-framing or framing. When you initiated the conversation, where on this great blue planet world are you? They knew why he was there. They made the meeting with him. They know he's from Connect and Sell. They know it's a conversation about their salespeople. They know it's a conversation about software. So Chris is right. I don't have to talk about any of that stuff. They'll do the work for me. All I got to do is ask them an open-ended, easy question that they have pride in. Like they will, they enjoy answering, and I get out of the way because they are pre-framed to talk about connect and sell, talk about more meetings, talk about prospecting, talk about their sales results. If he just waits long enough, they'll bring it full circle and start telling him all the reasons why they need him and their business. So it's almost a game. And Chris, I don't know if you play this game, but the game that I play is how few questions can I ask to get the most information from a prospect? And it's like a symphony playing. When I see it happening, like I see them starting to roll downhill, sometimes, you know, on a virtual call where, you know, in situations where I can do it, I'm, I just look at my salesperson and go, it's coming. You know, you can see it's, it's happening. And so the art of doing this, and this is really is an art, there's science in it, but it is an art to be organic in the moment. You can absolutely, totally teach salespeople that. And by the way, you asked about virtual selling. I did write an entire book on this on how do you leverage empathy in a virtual call? It's the same thing. Once everybody gets over, I'm on a camera, look at us, we're all having a conversation. I mean, I'm not even thinking, I guess I'm on a camera. Once we get over that process and we start paying attention to those emotional cues and all the probing questions we ask around those cues, it gets brutally simple because science does all the work for us. Yeah, it's like a boulder rolling down a hill. All you have to do is get it started. You don't have to figure out which ones it's going to hit. <laughs> Something's going to happen, and you're going to get to the bottom of the hill. Yeah, and that's what we call it a you know a self disclosure loop because then that boulder's rolling down the hill. The only thing that's going to stop it is you throw yourself in front of it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, like uh, was it Uncle Zig? I think Ziegler said, uh, "Feed your family or feed your ego." You can't do both in sales. And I think as your point, Jeb, right, as a lot of us as as young pups coming up, we want to, hey, my managers gave me all this stuff. I got to say, my marketing people gave me all these decks and I want to showcase how much I know about the industry, even though I'm a 23 and a half year old person and I step in the way of the prospect way too much and I can't build that trust or that empathy, it, it sounds like. So, man, great tips galore. Got to ask. Of the 55, I think we only went over one, right? Page uh, one tip so far. But of the 55, two, there's got to be one that has a greater atomic weight than the others. I mean, we love all our children as parents, certainly, and certainly all, all 15 of your books. You'll, but of the 55 ways to stay motivated and increase sales in a time of crisis, what's the favorite? Let's ask Chris that first because he's read the book twice. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my favorite. It's the opening chapter of part two, The Pipe is Life. Talk with people. And and here's why it's my favorite. In a crisis, we tend to clam up. We tend to clam up. We tend to go internal. We tend in companies to have internal conversations in a crisis instead of external conversations. You only have so many hours in the day. You only have so much emotional juice. 
you know, you've got to actually deal with a lot more stuff. In a crisis, one thing we didn't really talk about is everybody goes home to something that wasn't as good as before the crisis. <laughs> and so, you know, they gave it the office, but they got to give it a home too. It's going to be challenging, right? So I love that the simplicity of chapter 14, the opening, uh, I think it's 14, if I remember correctly, the opening of this entire section. And, and by the way, the pipe is life is a mathematical statement, actually. It basically is a statement of, that everybody who's an investor understands you have two things you can do as an investor. And all you're doing when in sales or businesses, you're investing. You're investing time in order to hope to get some sort of a return, right? As an investor, everybody knows when risk is high, portfolios must be broad. That's just a truth of every market back until you know, like the beginning of life, right? I mean, way, way before there are humans investing. If you're in a high risk situation, high fundamental risk, high external objective risk, you must have a broad portfolio because you don't control outcomes and you don't control timing, but you need outcomes within the amount of time you have available to cover your overhead so you don't starve to death. That equation's running at all times, and so in really great times, you can sometimes narrow your portfolio and go for some big thing, whatever it happens to be that you really believe in. But in tough times, you got to talk to people because that's step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, a million to broadening your portfolio. And otherwise, you're living in fantasy land. You're going to walk into that risk buzzsaw and observe your parts all over the place and look at the blood on the floor and then realize... Maybe I should have been talking to more people. If there was only a weapon out there on the market that allowed you to talk to more people, you know, if Chris, only. maybe you should. Uh, I wouldn't use it. Only. <laughs> Sounds like cheating to me. Sounds like cheating. Only. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like Groucho Marx, you would never belong to a club that would accept yourself yeah. as a member. Right? Exactly. But what Chris does at Connect and Sell is he facilitates conversations. The more people you have conversations yeah. with, the more you are going to sell. It is just sure. that simple. It truly is a mathematical equation. My favorite chapter, by the way, following up from that is Be the Squirrel. I think that in a downturn, in a crisis, I look in my own pecan trees in my backyard and look at the squirrels and the trees. They're relentless. They're unstoppable. They, nothing holds them back. They fall on the ground. They hit their back. They get back up. They do it again. They 24, seven, 24, seven. All they think about is prospecting for nuts and seeds and stacking them up for winter. And the great salespeople during a crisis are going to be focused 24, seven dialed in. They are going to broaden their pipe. They're going to fill it up and they're going to be relentless, unstoppable prospectors because when all is said and done, no matter what we say, all of the, you know, all the noise around sales in sales, persistence always, always finds a way to win. Yes. And creativity. I, when I read that chapter, <laughs> Jeb, I was beyond smiling. So here's a blog that I wrote in on May 16th of 2017. Here it is. Oh, really? Oh, look, there's Go a nuts. Go nuts. <laughs> Think like Go nuts. a squirrel. Yeah. And it came about from watching squirrels get to our bird feeders in the backyard. And I would devise extremely diabolical means to keep them from doing it. Now, my, <laughs> I have unfair advantages. You know, I have a degree in physics. I know some stuff other people don't know. But guess what? I don't know anything a squirrel doesn't know. They can get by <laughs> everything. Anything. And, it, and that's wonderful, wonderful 
videos on YouTube of, like you said, diabolical th ways of keeping them out. The problem is, is that you would think about the way and then you would go to work. <laughs> right. And you were thinking about something else. The squirrels, yep, yep. the only thing they thought of all day long, all night long is how am I going to get past this thing that Chris erected to keep me out of the bird seat? And that's how they beat you because they just figured out a way around it and they would work at it until they would. And that's the problem for a lot of salespeople right now is that they have been living large. They've been doing so well. We always talk about how hard sales is. I mean, every time somebody says to me that selling now is harder than it's ever been before, I just laugh at them. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. For the last 18 months, if you showed up at work and you could fog a mirror, you were probably going to make your quota. You were probably going to be able to survive. Right yeah. now, that is not going to happen because, folks, nobody is going to call you. And mm -hmm. the salespeople who have been living in that fantasy land of everything is good, suddenly they're going to start hitting those obstacles. If they pack up and go home, if they complain about it, if they whine about it, they're going to fail. But if they become the squirrel and they say, okay, I hit that obstacle – I got to figure out a way around it, under it, through it, over it, or I'm going to, I'm going to tear it up. Well, I'm getting to the other side of this obstacle. Those are the folks that are going to make it rain during this terrible time that we are moving into and we're going to go through. They're going to win. And by the way, if you're a salesperson and you're listening to this, look around you on your sales floor. Half of the people that are there with you right now aren't going to make it because they're not squirrels. Right. Yeah. So instead of sales gravy, I think it should be squirrel gravy for the next 18 to 24 months there. Squirrel gravy, I think. But I'm from the South, Corey, so let's just be careful. I've, I've actually had squirrel and gravy. It's one of my favorite things. Like with a little with some homemade biscuits in the middle of it. Down here where I'm from, we call them tree chickens. <laughs> I love it. Well, beautiful. Well, listen, well, we Jeff, got, it's Corey, been we got, we got a title. We got a title now for this episode. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Squirrel gravy. Be, be a tree chicken. That's right. Be, be a, tree a tree chicken. chicken. All right. We'll give that to uh, Austin when you hear it. We'll give it, be a tree chicken. I, I, I love it. <laughs> Jeb, it's an absolute pleasure to finally get you on the podcast here with the Market Dominance crew here. I think we got to have you back and talk about the other 51, 52 we didn't talk about yet. Right. But by then, you'll probably be ready for your uh, for book number 16. So for all those that want to uh, get a hold of Jeb, obviously a best-selling author, financial prospecting sales EQ objection selling in a crisis and 10 others so uh, go to salesgravy.com jebblunt.com for the esteemed Chris Beal this is Corey Frank from Branch 49 until next time selling a big idea to a skeptical customer investor or partner is one of the hardest jobs in business so when it's time to really go big, you need to use an uncommon methodology to gain attention, frame your thoughts, and employ a successful sequencing that is fresh enough to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. From crafting just the right cold call screenplays to curating and mapping the ideal call list for your entire TAM, Branch 49's modern and innovative sales toolbox offers a guiding hand to ambitious organizations in their quest to reach market dominance. Learn more at branch49.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.